From WUB News, you're listening to The Outlet, where campus meets community. I'm Taylor Burnett. Each week on The Outlet, we bring you stories from Southeast Ohio. This week on The Outlet, it's homecoming week for Ohio University, and WUB reporter Lexi Lepoff hits the streets of Athens to quiz some students on OU trivia. What year was Ohio University founded? 1806. 1806. It is 1804. And WUB News Assignment Editor David Forster reports on a different type of homecoming, as Worley Jack's remains return back to Meigs County after he was missing in action for over 70 years. Just as often as you see and read about horrendous atrocities on a, you know, on a massive scale, you see these small acts of humanity and kindness, and um, I guess it kind of restores your faith in humanity a little bit. These stories and more, right here, on The Outlet. It's homecoming week here at Ohio University. This year's parade starts at 10 a.m. and begins at the bottom of West Union Street. After marching up Union Street, it will turn onto South Congress Street, then President Street, and then up Court Street. After a turn onto Washington Street, a right turn onto South College Street will bring the route right by WUB's RTV building. It's expected to be a packed crowd, so it's a good idea to get to your ideal spot early. If you're planning on staying home, you can always catch WUB's live stream of the parade. Register to watch at Ohio. Ohio.edu/homecoming/parade-information. While alumni near and far prepare for the trek back to Ohio University, students are making their plans for one of OU's biggest weekends. Hadia Ray, a sophomore studying business in the Honors Tutorial College, will be attending the Blackburn Spencer Scholarship Pageant held on Saturday at 7 p.m. My plans for homecoming this weekend is to actually go to the pageant. It's um, a pageant where a lot of locally, uh, a lot of Black orgs go and just celebrate. Um, and celebrate the scholarship as well. And it's a beautiful thing because it allows us to come together as a unity and just celebrate the beauty of us. Jake White, a junior studying nursing, will be waking up early. Plan to wake up early and hopefully go to a party. And Ileana Lipinski, a freshman studying biology, wildlife, and conservation, has no plans at all. I have zero homecoming plans this year. Honestly, I don't even know if I'm going to go to the football game. The Bobcats face Akron in this year's homecoming game at 2 p.m. inside Peden Stadium on Saturday. Associate Sports Director Maria Manessi has the rundown on the Bobcats' loss to Kent State last weekend and the Bobcats' upcoming game. This past weekend was a close one for the Bobcats. Yeah, it was super close. They were on the road at Kent State, um, the first Mid-American Conference game, which was really exciting. The outcome for the Bobcats was not, though. Um, it was a very back-and-forth um, game. Going into halftime, the score was only 10-7 Ohio, so it was very like low scoring at the beginning, but the second half was very back-and-forth in terms like Ohio scored, and then Kent State would tie it back up. It was just... Kind of that kept repeating the whole game, and then it took them into overtime where, unfortunately, Ohio couldn't score on um, fourth down, so then Kent State got the 31-24 victory, which was um, disappointing for the Bobcats, obviously, like I had mentioned, first MAC game, so um, that was a, definitely a tough one. Yeah, absolutely. However, maybe we'll have a brighter spot this weekend as we come up to the homecoming game. Yeah, I'm so excited to see the crowd. Homecoming's great here in Athens, especially because it's all centered around the football game. So um, I'm excited to see everybody kind of gather and just hopefully the Bobcats are going to win against Akron. Um, They're in need of one after last week. So 
I think seeing everybody, I'm sure the players and um, Coach Alvin will be happy to see a good crowd on Saturday. Yeah, hopefully it boosts a little bit of that morale. Oh, yeah, absolutely. How much do you really know about Ohio University? Can you name the president off the top of your head? When was it founded? What about the oldest building on campus? WUB reporter Lexi Lepoff puts OU students to the test this week. It is officially homecoming week here at Ohio University, and we're going to go around campus today to see how well people know OU history. Let's go see how they do. What year was Ohio University founded? 18... Oh... Six. 1804. 1804. 1804. 1804. Exactly. She's quick with it. Who is Ohio University's current president? I plead the fifth. Oh, I have no clue. I you take a guess? I literally couldn't. I could not tell you. Oh, President Sherman. Sherman. Yes, correct. Hugh Sherman, obviously. Uh, Sherman. What is the name of Ohio University's fight song? Is it Alma Mater? I'm not sure about that one. I'm just going to go with uh, something Ohio. I plead the fifth. Stand up and cheer? Yes, that's correct. Oh, stand up and cheer. What is the oldest building on campus? Uh, uh, the, the president's home. Is it Boyd? No, not Boyd. I mean Baker. Memorial Auditorium, isn't it? Cutler. That is correct. Who was the first woman to graduate from Ohio University? Oh, Sandra Bullock. <laughs> no. I have no idea. Plead the fifth. <laughs> Margaret Boyd. Yes, she knew that one. Lead forecaster Aaron Ashley has the weather prediction for homecoming this week. Things look a little chilly so far. Now, Aaron, we have had some amazing weather days recently, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who is really, really hoping this translates into the weekend. Hugh and me both, Taylor. My meteorology friends and I have been watching this weekend very, very closely. You know, especially with the last weekend being so gloomy, you know, with the remnants of Ian moving past and all. I think we are due for a nice weekend. So what's the verdict? What can we expect this weekend? Well, contrary to the nice low 70s weather that we've been seeing recently, we are tracking the passage of a weak cold front, which unfortunately brings some cloud coverage and even the slightest chance for some rain on Friday. But right now, it's only sitting at 20%. But certainly the clouds will be a dramatic shift from the past couple of days, yeah? Unfortunately, yeah. If you just love that fall weather vibe with sweaters and blankets and thick socks, this weekend is definitely going to be for you. The main thing with this cold front coming in is definitely the temperature drop. How low are we talking? Well, it's not going to be too dramatic, thankfully, but it'll certainly cool down. The high temperature on Saturday is likely to be in the upper 50s to lower 60s. Definitely a lot cooler than what we have felt this week, though. I know some people are coming to town the night before to begin their celebrations, so what can they expect? Oh boy, well honestly, expect pretty cold temperatures. As these temperatures begin to drop down towards the freezing point, which is 32 degrees, there's a likely chance for early morning frost on Saturday. Ooh, so sweater weather at its finest. Oh my gosh, I am the biggest fan of sweaters. Cardigans, thick socks, you name it. You'll definitely need all of that this weekend, especially with those really cold overnights. 
Overall, though, should be a great weekend to get together with old friends and celebrate homecoming in true OU fashion. Bundled up in OU warm OU gear, of course. Of course, Taylor, you know it. Stay tuned to Newswatch every weekday on WOUB at 6.30 p.m. for a forecast closer to homecoming. Not in town? Stream it on WOUB's YouTube channel. A community in central Ohio came together to support a family when they lost one of their own. That same family works to gather $8,000 to support students with scholarships. Gridiron Glory reporter Zach Mothersball talked to them about their efforts. Unioto student Jude Little passed away in January of this year from vascular Ehlers-Danlos. In his memory, his family created the Jude Little Memorial Foundation to raise money for scholarships to give to kids in the Scioto Valley Conference. And Jude's brother Isaac is excited about what this will mean for those students. By doing this, we're making impacts on at least, at least eight kids we know every single year from the SVC. The goal is to raise $8,000 to give a $1,000 scholarship to one kid in every school in the SVC. And Jude's father Mike knows it's a lot easier to raise that money when they are doing it in the Ross County community. I really do feel like whatever the cause is, they're going to help. And for someone like Jude. But you have to credit Jude for the kind of person he was. You know, it, if <laughs> the community seen that, you know, the impact that he had in such a short time, he, you would, it's just, it, it still blows my mind to this day how far he reached. As far as his reach was, it was the people directly around him that he impacted the most, including his classmates. He was our listening ear, shoulder to cry on. He was, he was always there for everybody. He was just a great person. And just going through sports with him and stuff, he just taught me a lot. His character and just his attitude and all the life lessons he taught me. On Sunday, all these people gathered at J.C. Public Golf Course for a golf outing to raise money for the Jude Little Memorial Foundation. The cost for each team to participate was $240, and companies had the chance to donate $100 to have their company name and logo on a sign near the tee box. It was really early August before we even decided to open up like registration, and, and so we only had about six weeks. People were telling us, "Man, you guys are nuts. It's never going to work." We filled the teams in like 12 days. It was something. It was less than two weeks. It was insane. So there's going to be people fighting to get into this thing every year. This showing for the outing wasn't the only time the Little family was shown overwhelming support. Right after Jude passed for, for two months, we had stuff delivered to our door. I mean, millions of dollars worth of Olive Garden were at our house when we got back the very first day. But through all this, Mike and Isaac know that Jude would be opposed to all the attention that he is getting because that's just the kind of person he was. He just didn't really like having the spotlight on him. So he would, he would definitely be uncomfortable right now. I mean, he definitely wouldn't like all this going on, but it's happening. <laughs> Athens Area Stand Down is prepared to distribute goods to the region's population of people experiencing houselessness. Chairman Kathy Hecht helps organize the event, which distributes personal care items, hygiene products, clothing, and more to veterans and others in the community who are in need. 
The stand-down is Friday at the Athens County Fairgrounds, serving veterans from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. and serving others in the community from 12 p.m. to 2 p.m. Heck says they focus on items that people need that not everybody thinks of, like laundry detergent or toilet paper. They, they need this stuff, a lot of things that we take for granted that we can um, get for ourselves whenever we need it. Um, and it's not quite as easy for them. So um, it's, uh, it's a really good program. And but there are also an array of other resources available. People can get boots, coats, gloves, and blankets to prepare for the winter, in addition to information from other resources around the area that provide assistance. This includes veteran organizations, social services, and more. The stand-down is named for troops returning to a secure area to rest from active combat. In communities throughout the United States, the name transfers over to events serving veterans experiencing houselessness. The Athens event also serves others in need throughout the community. To get additional assistance, HECT says veterans should bring a form of military ID. This will be the event's seventh year in Athens, held annually on the first Friday in October. Bags will be distributed, and there will be lunch available as well. WUB News Assignment Editor David Forster explains the story of how the mystery of Warley Jacks was unraveled by a historian in the U.S. Department of Defense. On May 25, 1944, Warley Jacks enlisted in the United States Army. Ten months later, he was on a frigid battlefield in eastern France, part of a unit that would soon press into Germany and help liberate the Nazi concentration camp at Dachau. Worley was 22 years old, born and raised in the area around Rutland, a small village in Meigs County where his family had lived for generations. A year before Worley joined the Army, his younger brother, Robert Rajax, enlisted in the Navy. And Worley wouldn't have had to have gone, but Ray had always felt that uh, he went in because Ray did, and then Big Brother wasn't to be left behind. Of course, my Uncle Ray, he, he would tear up when he talked about it because he thought he was responsible for Worley making the decision to go. That's Larry Roop, whose mother was one of Worley's sisters. Worley's enlistment records indicate he is single with no dependents. It's possible Worley believed the Army wouldn't take him if they knew about his family. Worley had married Lily Foley in April 1941. Their first son, Richard, was born a little over a year later. Their second son, Virgil, was four months old when Worley enlisted. And by the time Worley was deployed to that battlefield in France, Lily was pregnant with their third child, a girl. She was born in July 1945, nearly two months to the day after the German surrender that marked the end of the war in Europe. The girl was named after her father, who on March 7 was seriously injured in battle and never seen again. My mom actually told me that he came to her in a dream and told her to name me Warletta. Warletta and her brothers grew up knowing little about their father, including whether he was dead or alive. No one knew for sure. His body wasn't found in the multiple sweeps of the battlefield after the war. Marvel Lane, one of Worley's several brothers and sisters and the only one still alive today, was five when he went off to war. The only thing I can remember that uh, my mom told me that my dad uh, was crying a lot and she could hear him, you know, praying outside. We had a grapevine and he would go up there and pray for my brother. Worley's wife, Lily, remarried two years after the war. Orletta says her mom didn't talk much about her father. For us, it's really hard to remember because mom was still hurting, even though she remarried. It's still there, you know. Lily died in November 1999, 
never knowing for certain what happened to Worley. But now we know. Several weeks ago, a unit of the U.S. Defense Department announced it had finally pieced together the story. Eric Kleinick is a historian with the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. Part of his job is to figure out what happened to members of the military who were listed as missing in action. Kleinick was looking at remains from the area around Reipertswiller in France, which is close to the German border. In January 1945, the German army launched a devastating offensive there and forced the Americans to withdraw. In mid-February, soldiers with the U.S. Army's 42nd Infantry Division began moving into the area to push the Germans back and advance into Germany. A major offensive was planned for mid-March, but leading up to that, American soldiers went out on limited patrols. Kleinick says Worley was on one of those. It was March 7th, 1945, at 3 o'clock in the morning when his patrol left their lines in the area of Lichtenberg, uh, which is actually right adjacent to Reipertswiller. They came upon German soldiers in a defensive position who immediately opened fire. Worley was struck by shrapnel and seriously wounded. They were unable to reach him due to the ferocity of the enemy fire, and uh, that's the last they saw of him. Several years later, remains were being removed from a German military cemetery next to where a field hospital had been located during the war. One set of remains was found wearing Worley's dog tags. The remains were turned over to American investigators. They concluded it was not Worley. The height estimate for the remains was five inches taller, and they couldn't explain why his body would have turned up in a German cemetery near Ludwigswinkel, 14 miles from where he was last seen. Plus, no other Americans were found in the cemetery. The remains were marked X8515, and for the next 70 years, Worley remained missing in action. When Kleinick pulled this X-file for another look, he had the benefit of some additional information. This included a report from interviews conducted with several members of Worley's patrol, who described his injuries. One of his hands had been amputated at the wrist, one leg was mangled, and the other severely cut. This matched the description of the X8515 remains, and Kleinick had an explanation for how Worley could end up so far from the battlefield. Members of Worley's patrol reported seeing German medics on the scene as they retreated. Kleinick requested another height estimate, which came in five inches shorter than the first one, close to Worley's height. This was enough to get the remains disinterred from a military cemetery in France and shipped to the United States. DNA analysis confirmed Kleinick's suspicion. The remains were Worley Jacks. Worley's remains will now be turned over to his children. Kleinick acknowledged that given the atrocities committed by the Nazis and that by March 1945 the Germans knew they were losing the war, it might seem surprising that a seriously injured American soldier was transported miles to a field hospital where medics amputated his leg in an effort to save his life. Just as often as you see and read about horrendous atrocities on a, you know, on a massive scale, you see these small acts of humanity and kindness. And um, I guess it kind of restores your faith in humanity a little bit. That's all we have for you this week. Thanks for joining us. The Outlet is produced each week by me, Taylor Burnett. We're edited by Atish Badia, Aaron Payne, and David Forster. Adam Rich is our technical assistant, and our theme music is performed by Ryan Gabos. Subscribe to The Outlet on SoundCloud or Spotify, as well as Apple Podcasts. You can find us online at woub.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at newswatch underscore woub. We'll be back next week with more stories from Southeast Ohio. 